are now listening to the Film Situation Podcast. We're so pleased to have filmmaker, writer, and director Emmett Loverdi. Welcome, Emmett. Thank you. Happy so, Emmett, I guess tell us a little bit about yourself. I have I first picked up a video camera when I was probably 12 years old, and before that, I was animating with drawings. I had a thing called a zoetrope, which is a and it's a ancient way to do animation and view it. And also what Francis Ford Coppola's production company, American Zoetrope. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I just been. I've, I've never been... seen one. I don't think. Oh really? Not in person. I'm trying. Maybe I have in like a museum or something. They're they're actually a lot of fun, and they're a great way to just understand what animation is and how it works and they're also tedious to make because drawing frame by frame is one has to have a very meticulous and patient personality and i don't i i didn't stick with that i was much happier shooting videos and i learned how to edit film on a flat on on a on the steam back it, it was less sophisticated than that but yeah the same idea we chopped the film and then we had to scrape the glue the emulsion off and then glue the pieces together and it was it's amazing right because when i first started editing it was in the 90s when i was in high school mm-hmm. and it was actually linear editing on vin- video so i always say to younger filmmakers i'm like you have no idea how easy it is to use nonlinear software compared to just like how things were back in the day, even just like from the nineties, never mind actually splicing and taping together film. Yeah. And it's, and the thing is splicing and taping it together gave me a real appreciation. First of all, for how easy editing is now. And also just the fact that each film, each piece of film, each frame of film is a little photograph. And yeah, that's true. It really is a thing of beauty. There's <laughs> a, a tangible sort of thing and an analog sort of way of looking at it, which I think that's really cool. So were you, so you were always into it. You always had a passion for when I was in motion picture, essentially. When I was 11 years old, I went to see a movie and I sat through two performances of it, even though obviously you weren't supposed to. And it it changed my life in the way that you, I walked out of there knowing what I wanted to do. I said, this is it. That's what I want to do. And that movie was not Star Wars, by the way. Which I love Star it? Wars. What's that? Which film was it? I was called Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, Steven Spielberg. Yes. I love Star Wars just like all the kids did, but that Close Encounters was, I found that touching. I found that it moved me in a way that Star Wars was fun, but Close Encounters was, it just asked a lot of very serious questions. And it, it was just, I was amazed that a movie could make me feel like that. And then I walked out of the theater, I was literally put the hands up to the face and was like seeing everything through a frame. And I was, and I, my attitude was like, I don't even know how to, I don't even, I don't even know how to get a, get started with something like this, but I'm going to find out. And the great French filmmaker, Francois Truffaut was in the film. Yes. Yes, playing Claude Lacombe. <laughs> Dude, I don't know if you know this story, but he had such a heavy French accent. And one of those lines in the movie was, they deserve to be here more than we. And, or they deserve it more than we. And uh, no one could understand that. And so they made him a t-shirt that, they made everybody t-shirts that said what people thought he said, which was, they deserves this. Mozambique and people are walking around with that on their t-shirts. That's hysterical. But I love the film to this day. I still love watching it. I have to revisit that one. I haven't seen it. I don't think since I was a kid. So that's one I have to revisit. Actually behind this wall where I'm sitting right now, I watch a lot of movies projected. I have my 4k projector. So I have a giant sort of, I like watching movies that way. Nice. Like a good sound system. And it's just, I don't know. I like it. So tell us a little bit about your work. You've made how many feature films at this point? I have completed three features. I shot a feature over the summer called the Maginot Line. And 
I had to put it on hold. It's all shot. It's all ready to go to be edited and completed. But I put it on hold because I had this opportunity to make another feature called Without a Name. And this one, we're shooting it in Wisconsin. And I don't, Wisconsin has some pretty harsh weather over the winter. So we're trying to shoot it before it gets too cold and difficult to deal with the elements. So we're going to be there in October. And I've been assured that uh, I'll need a jacket, but we probably won't be crippled by being, we probably won't get snowed in. My fingers are crossed. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> you guys will be blessed with good weather. And we'll, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll and then, but, and that was the thing was like, we got to, do I wait till the spring and waste some momentum that we have going with the project? Or do we just say, you know what, we're going to shoot it now and we're going to finish bo both movies at the same time and uh, introduce them to the world. There's something for everybody because one of the movies is a comedy and then the other is a thriller. Oh, that's Hopefully. pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I had the chance to watch your film Girls Night In. Ah, yes. And I enjoyed watching it. What, and I guess maybe tell the audience what the film is about and, and um, I guess what inspired it. Actually, it's something I witnessed or was told about anyway, I had three female friends who were very good friends of mine and they used to spend a lot of time together and uh, they would meet all the time and have dinner and chat and hang out. And uh, one time, two of them said to me, they told me the story. They said, you know what she said to us? She said, together, we make up the perfect woman. And we didn't know what she was talking about. We're like, what do you mean? And she said, you're the brains, you're the personality. And she pointed to herself and she said, I'm the beauty. And these girls were devastated. They were really, and the thing was, I didn't understand why. I was like, why didn't you just tell her to shut up? Hang on. What's yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't seem like that should be something that would end a friendship. It would be, seems like something that should be annoying, but not something worth ending a friendship over. Yeah. It's, and I'm not suggesting that the male way of doing, dealing with this is any better, but a guy, a bunch of guys would just tell him to go to hell. You're an idiot. Shut up. Whatever. Teasingly. But these two women, they just, they took it to heart and they were very hurt and they were devastated. And that's, uh, and I wanted to write about it because I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. And so I talked to them. I talked to other women. And of course, most of the women I talked to said, oh God, what a, yeah, I would feel that way too. And I said, okay, this is pretty universal. And I thought it would be a great topic for a comedy. Now in real life, did the friends rekindle their friendship? Sadly, no, oh, but it, it actually ended it. Yeah, it was, as far as I know, like they're, they, those two are still in touch, but I think the other one that it's just, they, they went there with separate ways and I respect that. And in a weird way. The movie is uh, my little postcard to the three of them because they, I felt, first of all, I, I could tell they were very hurt, hurt. And the funny thing is that some other people I know who are women have troublesome female friends as well. And, and they, this one situation I know about the, the, some, a friend, she gets, she gets hurt con constantly by this other friend. And they've had what she called, my dear friend calls breakups. Literally, they didn't talk for years. And they would come back together and it would be great and they'd be friends again. And then this girl would say something awful. <laughs> and, and I would say, just tell her to shut up or tell her she's an idiot. Anyway, so this I is- I think that could happen with all friends, regardless with men and women. It just, and then- What's tricky too about getting older is there's friends that you like and you want to spend time with, but you just don't have the time to. I just had dinner with two of my buddies from college that were really close friends of mine. And we have a great time. We get along really well, but we hardly ever see each other just because of schedules and just demanding people live in different places and that sort of thing. Are you in New York? I am. I'm in New York. I'm in the suburbs, but I'm in the city pretty much mm -hmm. almost every day. I was born in the city. I'm from the city, grew up in the Bronx, but I was born in Manhattan. And now I live up in Westchester. I lived in New York for almost two years and it is 
or it was, I don't know, <laughs> maybe it's changed. It was very hard to get anybody to commit to doing something social. Every time I would, every time I would try to make plans, like 50% of the time, it was canceled. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I got a, I, I got a thing I forgot about, or I got to work or. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it, you attribute that to be, that's more common in New York than in LA. I don't, it's, I think it's the group of friends because the other thing is when I went to school in Los Angeles, then I moved to New York after college. And then I moved back to Los Angeles. And when I moved back to Los Angeles, it was like starting over. And so. I, and where'd you grow up when you were like, where were you born and raised? I actually grew up in Berkeley, California. Oh, okay. It's like it's near like San, San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah. yeah. Berkeley's a whole other. <laughs> Berkeley's a wonderful place that I have many stories to tell and that I want to tell definitely. But and it, here's the weird thing is that I actually don't, I really haven't experienced living in Berkeley as an adult because I left as soon as I started college when i was younger one of my favorite punk bands was from there operation ivy i went to school with two members of operation ivy no way which two yeah matt freeman and oh, Tim freeman. It, oh that became rancid essentially yeah. that's pretty cool <laughs> that is amazing Emmett. you and you went to high school with them or yeah i matt was actually a good friend of mine for a while no way that is pretty cool he thing is he used to get mad at me because he said I was really negative. He said, God, you're so negative. <laughs> really? Yes. But, yeah. but he, if you knew Matt, I don't know what he's like these days. I, my sister actually knows him socially, but, but it was interesting because it, I'm going to tell you something that, that I can't verify, but I've had, a, I have a very good memory about this. Matt and I used to hang out and I had an album called the who live at Leeds. And if you've ever heard it, John Entwistle of The Who has some amazing bass work. Does a lot of bass solos in this album. And I knew Matt was always very passionate about the bass. And he's a great bass player, man. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's, he's known to be a great, and he really is. For, especially for a punk band, like he really tears it up. He's, he, I said to him, one, one day we were hanging out and I said, you know, I've got this album. This is the way I remember it. He may remember it differently or may have not remembered this at all but i said there's this album i have it's got some really good bass playing on it so i brought it over to his house after school because you know that's what you did with the big 12 inch <laughs> or however big records were and i played this for him and he went crazy for it and he said oh my god this is some of the best playing i've ever heard. so from then on he could not stop talking about john entwistle and how much what a fantastic player he was and so since then i've asked myself like did i introduce matt freeman to the base i don't think i did but it but, was but that's pretty amazing and by the way it's wild how it's just funny how life is man because you grew up thousands of miles away and different you're a bit older than me but one of my first concerts in the mid 90s was seeing rancid when i was 14 years old and i went nice. with a kid from my high school, this guy, Ross Eustace, we always joke around about it because we somehow got separated. We, it was at this venue called the Roseland in New York City, and we got separated somehow in the beginning of the concert. We did not see each other. We took separate trains home, like whatever, like we didn't even see each other. I was looking for him the whole time. I guess he was in the very, very front by the stage the whole time. I remember Joey Ramone was there and I met Joey Ramone like from the Ramones. That was That's like a cool. big deal. I was like, wow, Joey Ramone is here. And Rancid put on a great show. And then I started going to a lot of shows after that. So that's, but the fact that you grew up mm -hmm. with these guys, it just, it's things like that make you feel like the world is a small place sometimes. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. I was like curious if you'd, I was like, maybe he's heard of this band and just the fact that you were like good friends with them and went to school with them. And you knew Tim as well, Tim Armstrong. Yeah, I didn't know him well, um, but I definitely, it was a small school, so you knew, and it was- Everybody knew everybody. More or less. And and the funny thing was when I first met him, we I was in like seventh grade and Tim was, he was small and quiet. That's literally the grade that I was when years later yeah. when i first heard rancid by the time i guess their second album came out and th that was like a big deal 
I got one more anecdote that's it's pretty funny. We so in high school, I didn't I wasn't interested. I always had a job. You know, I was Mr. Go to work. I don't have time for anything else. So I wanted to I was like that too. I worked as a video editor when I was in oh, high nice. school after school every day at a small like production company that was doing like weddings and bar mitzvahs. But I loved it, just being there with the decks. Yeah. You know, and stuff like that. Video decks. And yeah, I loved it. But anyway, I was I could relate. So I and so I wasn't involved in student government at all. But at my school, we had there was a prom committee to plan the prom. And so the first day of the meeting, the first meeting of the prom committee, I show up and everybody's kind of because they all knew who I was. And they're like, what are you doing here? You don't care about student government. I was like, I just want to have a good prom and I don't want to have to pay too much for it because they were getting the ticket price was going up and up. I was like, we got to do fundraisers and everything else. And we had this beautiful theater at our high school, still do. And I said, we're throwing around ideas about how to do a fundraiser, you know, what fundraiser, like car wash, bake sale. And I said, we've got a theater and we've got all these bands at our school. Let's have a concert. And some people scratching her head and was like, yeah, I guess we could do that. And so we had a concert with three bands. And one of the bands was, they were called them, I think they called themselves, I think when we called them to ask them to be in it, they were called the Surf Rats. And then by the time the concert happened, I think they changed their name to Basic Radio. But the band featured Tim and Matt. That's and pretty cool, man. It was so, one of their best, it was one of their first concerts, basically. Yeah. So I know there was a well-known venue, I think it was called 921 Gilman Street. Yes. That bands like that operation ivy and then rancid early rancid days they would play at. did you ever go there were you ever involved in any of that a little bit of history so when i was in high school there were there were several club clubs in berkeley there was it was a place called the berkeley square there was ruthie's inn in downtown berkeley there's a place called the keystone 924 Gilman had not opened yet. Okay, I said the wrong thing. 924 Gilman, nope. I think I might have said the wrong number. I knew what you were talking about. <laughs> and the thing was, the thing was, it hadn't opened yet, but it was like the stage was set. And we were, me and my friends were going to these places and hearing great bands. And there was one band called The Uptones that is largely unknown nowadays, but at that time, I think that, I think their pinnacle was they opened for Billy Idol at the Oakland Coliseum. It was a, they were just, they were like on this upward trajectory. And, yeah. and a lot of the bands that you know, like Rancid or Green Day, or I don't know so much about Metallica, whether they would have been interested, but I know these people were all going to see the Uptones at Ruthie's Inn at the Keystone. And I actually graduated high school in 1984 and I think 924 Gilman opened in like 1986. Yeah. Right after, I still had family there, so I knew what was going on, but it was, it was a little, it was just after when I was there. Like Op Ivy recorded their full length album, their LP in 1989. And I discovered it in, in 1996, like when Rancid was like in full swing. Yeah. Which is funny because when you're 14, 1989 even though it was only like seven years earlier it seemed like it was like already something oh, yeah. that was like ancient oh i discovered this old record <laughs> you know what i mean of this band that used to exist and it was the precursor to this band that i like now you know yeah. what I mean? but it was only seven years old that record like it which doesn't seem like much nowadays like that would be like something from 2015 right now if oh i have this record for 2015 that wouldn't be that old right? Be a few years old, but it wouldn't seem like something ancient. But when you're a teenager, it felt more, oh, that's something from the past that you discovered this cool thing from the past. Oh, when I was in high school, if, if a record was a year old, I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. we have something new, please. It was that back then. So impatient. Yeah. yeah. But, um, so but it was kind of funny how that is, right? And the thing, here's the other thing is that if you've, I don't know whether you're a fan of Green Day or not, but. I was when I was a teenager and earlier on, but then I feel like I started then, like I like Green Day and Rancid, they were coming out at the same time. And I knew that they were connected, like mm -hmm. from the same place, same sort of similar thing. And from what I heard, I think Billy Joe Armstrong and Tim Armstrong, they're like distant cousins or something. 
I think they're very possible. Yeah, Yeah. I think they're related, actually, unless I'm mistaken about that. But I remember hearing that or something like that. But yeah, never Green Day. I wouldn't say I'm a fan of Green Day. I like some of their songs for sure. But Rancid was really the band that was like pivotal for me Mm -hmm. getting into punk for sure. You're probably surprised that I mentioned these groups, right? When uh, I think it's great. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's great. No, the thing is, if you look at the album Dookie by Green Day. Yeah. I think it came yeah, out in 93 sure. or 94. 94, yeah, it was a big deal. The picture on the front? The, the you know, illustration? Yeah, with the monkey and the monkey flying the airplane. That was drawn by my cousin. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. He, yeah, I'm serious. They were all, it was like this whole, they all knew each other. My, they were in bands together. That They played together, stuff like that. Can I, let me run and get something. It'll take me five seconds. Oh, absolutely. Cool? No problem. Of course. <laughs> So this is a documentary. Oh, is it backwards? No, it only appears backwards for you on my oh, cool. screen. It appears forward. Okay. It's a documentary. It's called Turn It Around, the Story of East Bay Punk. That's pretty I cool. had nothing to do with this. It's actually, they put out an album too. But nice. it's a documentary about a lot of the bands that I knew. So it's cool. I wish it was, I wish it was better, but, it was, but it's pretty good. And nice. it's out there. It's out there in the world now. Yeah. Uh, were you in touch? Were you still in contact with Matt Freeman by the, by the time he was in Operation Ivy? Like you, you had never seen them live or anything? No, but I, I knew people who knew him. My cousin was very involved in the punk scene in Berkeley. It's funny because in this album, I'm mean, this album, this movie turned around as I was watching it. I was like, I know that guy. I know that guy. Like every other person they interviewed was somebody I knew or somebody I went to high school with. Or somebody I grew up next door to. So that, that is so, that's funny for a number of reasons, man. Because I was doing just like a location scout on Saturday and I brought my camera out in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And just, just on a Saturday afternoon, thinking that you're going to be filming just streets and scenic things. Then all of a sudden we stumble upon a block party that's like really interesting and there's music going on. Then like I go to another block and then some guy invited us to, an underground photography show and then we go downstairs into this basement sort of place of a storefront and then they had this really cool photography exhibit and it was people that used to take photography at hardcore shows and i used to go to a lot of new york hardcore shows and i was like i know that guy there's a vinnie stigma from this band agnostic front that i know and there's different people i'm like whoa i know that band i know that per like person so it's just funny how things are like that i and that was, here's the thing. I, in many ways, I wish I had, I wish I was a musician because I love music and I love the process of making music and inventing it. And, and I'm not saying that I would rather be a musician than be a filmmaker. I love being a filmmaker, but I, if I had a second life, I think I would learn how to play the piano and, and see what happens after that. Yeah. Same honestly so going back into the film yeah situation excuse the pun here yeah but tell us a little bit about tell us about the making like what's your sort of process like as a director so talk a little bit about your filmmaking style first of all i'm not some directors are very like i have to direct what i write and I, and I, I write with the intention of that. I'm not that way. I'm happy to, I actually went to theater school. I went to, I got a degree in theater from UCLA and I was always understood that I would be directing plays written by other people. And also as a playwright, I wanted other people to direct what I wrote. So that cross-pollination was always part of the process. I started directing my own scripts mostly because i was tired of waiting for somebody else to do it but i actually love it when someone like uh, one of my plays was done last weekend in south dakota and i didn't even hear about it until after the fact which is frustrating because i have friends in the area but it feels good it's like well, that's, I, that's and cool. yeah like in 2013 i went to it's kind of harsh 
2013, I went to a, I, one of my plays was being done in Iowa and I was, I needed a boost, frankly. I was just not feeling a little down and I thought, I'm going to go see this play and see how the audience likes it. So I, anyway, so I called the theater and ordered some tickets and then they're like, yeah, could I have a name please? And I gave my name like, wait, you're the author. I was like, yeah, but I still want to come see the play. And they're like, oh my God. So they rolled out a red carpet for me, which was very nice. And, you know, and I got to meet the cast and everything. I, I went to Iowa. I flew there and had a wonderful couple of days. But the thing was, I just wanted to see what they would do with my play. <laughs> I really Totally. Just... And how was it? Did you feel like they did it justice? Oh yeah. It was a comedy. And, and also how did they discover your play? Oh, I have a, I have two publishers. My, one of the, they're called Play Scripts Incorporated is one. And the other is called Hoyer Publishing. It's H-U-E, H-E-U-E-R. Yeah. Hoyer Publishing. Anyway, and I have great respect for the whole process because if you license something that I wrote, you buy the right to do what you're going to do with it. Within reason, you can't change the words and things like that. But if, so I didn't, I had no intention of saying anything. If they did what I, something I loved, or if they did something I hated, I wasn't, I was just going to, I happen and by, to like And by the way, I just want to comment that I think that's, that is a good philosophy because that's, I share your sentiment about that because I don't understand, even with screenwriters, I know there was a famous case in the early 90s when Tarantino had written natural born killers and then he sold it to oliver stone optioned mm -hmm. it and made it into a film and tarantino went on the record saying i hate what oliver stone did with my movie but i think tarantino is in the wrong in that case i'm a tarantino fan i really love his work but i don't think i think if somebody else adapts your work you don't you're giving up your baby for adoption you can't criticize how somebody else is really raising your baby. Um, yes. I feel I'm with you. I would approach it the same exact way, but that's cool that you ended up liking it and you flew out there and you like what they did with the piece. And it was also, it was just, it was, it just felt so good to just sit in the audience and hear laughter. Yeah. Cause you know, it's, it was a comedy and if nobody was laughing, I don't care whether I agreed with their interpretations or not, we're not getting the job done. And so I was, the audience seemed very happy. And then they did a little Q and A afterwards. And it was really, like I said, it was ultimately because I was, I was feeling down at the time, but I was really glad I went. And I am always happy to go see what somebody does with something I've written. I direct my own work just because I'm tired of waiting for somebody else to discover it. But yeah, that's also, I think a good mentality about it. I'm the same way. And I like the creative just collaboration. It seems like you're a big collaborator, a collaborator. And which brings me to my next thing is that I see that you were involved as a producer on a film that starred Mel Gibson called agent game. Yes. I didn't get a chance to watch the movie yet, but tell us a little bit about that. How'd you end up getting involved with that? That's it was, it was funny because this guy, Tyler Connie, he used to be exclusively a distributor and, and he was, he looked at a film of mine called, it was called she's out of his mind. And at the time Tyler was interested in taking it on and he wasn't able to do a lot with it, but we stayed in touch and he was always nice about the whole thing. And so I knew that he was getting into production. He was making films himself. And I, a couple of years ago, I said, I said, listen, I had some money at the time to play with. And I said, I'd like to help with something you're doing. Cause I liked him and I believed in what he was trying to do. And he let me be an associate producer on a film called the adventures of Dally and Spanky. And it's about a little dog that rides a horse. It's the cutest thing you've ever seen. It was for kids. And, and that was a happy experience. And I didn't do much, but I went to the set and I met the actors and I just got a chance to watch the production a little bit. And he said, he said, we're doing a, we're doing a spy movie. 
you know, do you want to get involved with that? And I said, yeah, sure. So I got involved with this. It was called Untitled Spy Movie <laughs> or something like that. And it had no stars at the time. It was just something that was in in development. And so that's what it that's what became Agent Game. Oh, okay. Um, cool. Yeah, I was I was happily surprised because I didn't know who they were gonna get, but I certainly didn't expect it was gonna be Mel Gibson. So can you hear you mean you mean yeah. they they didn't have him in the lookbook when No, when not when I not when I got involved. <laughs> no, I know. I'm joking around. For oh. people that aren't in the film industry, sometimes people put the most A-list sort of people in a lookbook, even though there's no sort of attachments with those people. Yeah, no, Tyler was very realistic. He wasn't like, oh yeah, we're gonna get Mel Gibson. He was like, we'll see what we can do. And it went the way it went. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't, I wasn't heavily involved in the production, but I was certainly a part of it and hope to do some more things with Tyler and his company. For sure. So I guess, t tell us about what's coming up in the pipeline. You, I know you said you're shooting a couple of movies and is there anything that you want to mention about that? Yes, I have a film called The Maginot Line. And this that was actually the play that I went to oh, uh, Iowa for. Oh, cool. So well, same, same script. Yeah, and so I went to, so we filmed it here in Los Angeles and we got a, an actress that I had worked with back in 2003, who was absolutely wonderful. Her name is Mara, Mara Marini. And she, she had a recurring role on Parks and Recreation. And she she played a porn star named Brandy Max. And if Mara, you're, is it M-A-R-A? Yeah. yeah. It's so funny because my cousin, who I co-wrote all my early scripts with, his name is Mark Marini, which is only- oh, Really? Letter away. It's just a funny coincidence. Yeah. Maybe there. Shout out to Mark yes. on the Film Situation podcast. We shot it in Los Angeles in June. Mara Marini did a wonderful job. I'm super excited to dive into finishing post and getting it out there. What happened though is this opportunity came up to do this other movie, and actually shoot it in Wisconsin because they have some. It's a different kind of movie. It's a thriller and it's a little violent. And so we, and we needed open spaces and we just needed a totally different look. And I know that those are, I know there are those kind of locations available in Los Angeles, but I don't know how to get access to them cheaply. And I have a gentleman I've been working with in Wisconsin named Aaron, Eric Lukert, who has been incredible about just finding us places to shoot. We're shooting in a summer camp. Uh, actually, nice. I probably shouldn't name the summer camp because I don't know that they want to be associated. <laughs> I don't know that they want everyone to know that we were going to shoot a rather violent film there. So we'll just say a summer camp. We'll but, just, call it, just call it Camp Crystal Lake. There, yes. <laughs> exactly. But it's, be it's beautiful and we're very lucky to get it. And we, I went, Hayato Mitsuishi, the producer and I, went about two weeks ago, flew out to Wisconsin for the auditions. And I, and people, it was so funny to have auditions in person and people were weird. They're like, really, you want me to come and it's like, yeah, that's how you do it. So no one ever asked me to do that anymore. Now it's all online and zoom auditions, but I just, I can't get a sense of an actor if I don't see them in person. Absolutely. It was, to me, it was entirely worth the trouble of going on this trip. We found a great, we found a great cast. And uh, I came back to LA to tie up some loose ends. And then about two weeks, we're heading to back to Wisconsin to shoot. That's pretty cool. And so, so is most of the- can go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how many days is the shoot? 14. That's a pretty quick, I feel like that's been the trend of what I've been hearing from a lot of filmmakers is that it's other, I've been hearing a lot about a lot of 12, 14 days, that sort of thing. That sounds intense to me for a feature film to shoot it in that kind of time, but although people are doing it, so, so I'm definitely not trying to be like a naysayer about that. I'm just, that, and that, I'm just trying to point it, point out that's definitely a trend that I've been hearing a lot of. Listen, it is, 
it seems like it's harder. There are more venues to show your movie streaming and things like that. And that's great, but they pay so little that it just seems, it seems almost impossible to recoup your money from a film. And so you can't spend a lot if you want to get anything back. And with part of that is you got to shoot it as quickly as you can. You can't do you anticipate, it's, it's frustrating. Do you, do you anticipate going really long days? Realistically, we probably will. I prefer eight hour days. Like when we shot the Maginot line in September, almost every day was eight hours. And that's the way I prefer. Yeah. When I shot my movie, The Trouble, most of the days were eight hours. And then we knew we had mentally prepared the cast and crew that there were going to be a couple of like long days where it might be like 15 hour days, but just like a couple that we didn't brutalize the crew. Now I've heard other stories, like my cinematographer worked on a film out of the area and he said that they were working from 7 a.m till 2 a.m every night and i'm like that is nuts so i'm like you only had five hours yeah. of downtime including the time you're supposed to sleep between them they were shooting at the location that they were staying at but it was <clears throat> that's still I, he was like texting me halfway through the shoot because i was actually out in california producing a, a project and he was out out of the area doing this other film and I think it turned out pretty well, but I know that the crew got brutalized. And that's something that I'm always cautious about. It actually makes me sad a little bit to hear that it turned out well, because they'll do it again. Yeah. Kind of wish it didn't turn out well from like a morale standpoint, but I think it turned out well from like a content standpoint. I don't think like content wise, like you could still get great stuff. You can't do that and expect everybody to be happy. We so when do you guys start shooting? October 3rd. Okay, great. Right around the corner. So yeah, definitely good luck with that shoot. I'm assuming that, yeah, you're knee deep in, in pre-production. Every yeah. You have the whole crew staffed at this point and stuff? Or? As far Pretty much, yeah. We're looking for a makeup artist, actually, in the Wisconsin. Yeah. Southern sure Wisconsin area. Yeah, but you still have enough time to find somebody good to fill the position. Is it like, or other positions like local? Is it a DP that you've worked with before? Yeah, the DP, the DP's name, his name is Griffith Mahaffey, and he's coming up from Louisiana, actually. Oh, and he's cool. very cool. So I, and then there's a guy in the sound crew that I worked with before. And he's um, based in LA and he's going to Wisconsin as well. No, he's based in Wisconsin. Oh, he's based in Wisconsin. Yeah. Okay. That's well, good. See, here's the thing. I worked on a film in Wisconsin last December, and I'm not going to name the film. It was a horrible experience, it, honestly. But it wasn't because of Wisconsin. It was because we were working with a director who, frankly, was abusive. And, yeah, that um, is rough. I was yeah. just talking about that with a friend of mine, that there's nothing worse than when a director just loses their cool... Mm -hmm. all the time just because they're stressed out and it just becomes a bad vibe on the whole set because that really the director sets the tone for the whole set and my whole thing is just to always try to keep your cool and filmmaking is all about problem solving like problems are going to happen just by the nature of all films, like even on the highest budgets, never mind on the lowest of budgets. So my whole thing nowadays is just to embrace that that's just part of it. problem solving. You want to be prepared, of course, being oh, yeah. as prepared as possible already puts you ahead of the game. But having a, and I know that Stanley Kubrick has always talked about this in interviews that he said the filmmakers need to have a generalized approach to problem solving in order to really effectively do their job. And I think that is a hundred percent true. I've had, I remember one time being on a set on, on a feature film and the main act, one of the main actors, something happened with his jeans from one day to the next where I'm like, did you wash your jeans? I'm like something, I'm like, they look like skin tight compared to we were shooting <laughs> the day before and mm -hmm. we were shooting at this place in the Bronx. And I had to like really quick think, think quickly on my feet there. You know what? I was like, I went literally, 
I was like, try on, I was like, try on my pants and I'll try on these jeans. Like I gave him my jeans that I was wearing right then and there essentially. Mm -hmm. And then I took the other one. I couldn't even wear the other jeans because they were so tight. I went next door and all they had was pajama pants and I bought pajama (laughs) pants and wore them. But I remember somebody on set and be like, wow, like you didn't even break your stream of consciousness. You did that so fast. That wasn't even, it wasn't even an issue (laughs) of like how fast that you just thought to do that. I'm like, that's what you need to do. You need to like, just, yeah, not break your stream of consciousness. It just like the the train has to keep moving forward. Yeah, I agree. I teach a screenwriting class and one of my students, she says, she said, Mr. Laverty, do you think I'm ready to direct? And I wasn't trying to be flippant. I said, do you know what you want? And she said, yes. I said, then you're probably ready to direct because that's because I said nothing slows a film down more than a director standing there going, I don't know what to do. Yeah, being indecisive. (laughs) You can't be indecisive as a director. That's that's 100% true. Yeah, but but it's, and that's what I said. I said, directing is knowing what you want. I said, producing is having common sense so much of it just like what like somebody runs in with their hair on fire what are we gonna do we don't have enough jars for the next scene it's like do we have coffee cups yeah okay let's use the coffee cups okay okay somebody kind of you like talk them off the ledge it's just a good producer rat just solves the problems that they come up you usually in conjunction with the director, but hopefully they don't bro- bother the director unless they absolutely have to. That's another thing. No, that's absolutely. The, <laughs> a good producer is there to lob up the assist while the director puts the ball in the net, essentially. I had a, I was working on a movie a couple of years ago and I had an actress who, she had six days, maybe eight days, I don't know, whatever. She was halfway through her agreed upon schedule. And she came to me and she said, my, my agents, because apparently actors need more than one agent now. I don't, I don't understand that. But she said, my agents, they don't think I should do this movie. They want me to quit. Now, that is ridiculous. She had, she, and it was a low budget movie. I get it. And she was definitely on an upswing. When was this in proximity to the shoot again? This oh, it was right in the middle of it. In the oh, yeah. middle of the shoot. Yeah. That we is unprofessional. Yeah, yeah. That's something. Oh yeah. And I, and the thing is we had a signed contract. It was, a, it was a union film, so she couldn't just walk off without consequences. And, but I didn't want to have to tell her that because I needed, I knew that if I told her exactly what I felt like saying that, yeah, I'd win the argument, but I would alienate this person. And so I went to my producer, who is this very tactful woman. And I said, Cindy, would you please make this go away? Because I, I don't have time to deal with it. And I shouldn't have to deal with it, frankly. Yeah. And, and Cindy talked to this person and it was never brought up again. Okay, but that's good. Yeah. But that's a good example of what a producer does mm-hmm. when everything is going well so then it shielded you from the awkwardness and the un the uncomfort of that situation because it was something that never should have come up you signed the contract we've got an agreement we're not we're not violating yeah, let's just continue that, but is it was, out, that is out of control honestly it, and the thing is it didn't it never went past that like she did her work she com- did you know she completed her role and it turned out fine can i take a wild guess in her one of her agents weren't one of the big four major agencies probably not yeah I, it would yeah. I, don't I don't know guess. i always think it's fucking laughable mm-hmm. when people are, oh my agent this my agent that so is your agent like william morris is it in is it uta is it icm no so then come on and i'm not trying to rip on age i just feel like there's a lot of agencies that are very predatory. Like a, a lot of those smaller agencies could be very predatory with actors and stuff. So I'm just always cautious. 
about it. Not that there aren't good ones. Of course there are, but it's the same thing with the distribution companies. There's good distribution companies. And as as a filmmaker, there's certainly predatory ones. So she might've just been getting bad advice from an agency that's not really doing the right thing. There, there was an actress that I worked with quite a few years ago, like back in the nineties, actually. And I really liked her and I really, she never quite materialized. Yeah, she didn't make it big, but but I always liked her and she was certainly good in things that I worked with her on. And she she was so concerned about how she came across. And she said, you know what I do? She says, because this is again, the nineties, she said like, when I read a script or something and I go, would Jennifer Aniston do this? Would Cameron Diaz do this? And but it was usually like, like some, Something goofy in comic would, and said, so, "What are you talking about?" I said, "Cameron Diaz put goop in her hair and had it, and everybody watching the movie knew what the goop was. How humiliating can you get?" And it was wonderful, wonderful, and it was is yeah, seen. Yeah, I, I love there's wonderful. There's something about Mary. I thought that movie was great. Yeah, it's like, why are you worried about your dignity when those women? Jennifer Aniston was always falling down. I saw a movie with. Sandra Bullock just last weekend she was tripping and falling and stumbling and listen you know. every everybody could have those sort of thoughts like I had a friend of mine actually that same project that I was talking about my I put my my friend who's a cinematographer onto that project and this mm -hmm. was a year and a half ago when the pandemic was still like in effect and he's like I don't know if I should do this movie it's like pay so little and working all these hours. I'm like, listen, I'll be honest. I was like, is your phone ringing off the hook right now to do feature films back to back? He's like, no. I was like, this might be the only one you're doing this year. It's like, I if it were me, I would do it. It's like, you could do whatever you want, but if I were in your position, I would do it. You know, he's like, yeah, you're right. And then, did it. so it's one of those sorts of things. There's a lot of times where people might think, oh, this thing is beneath me or, but unless they're, they have all the options in the world. Why not just do it and make the best out of it? I knew a story about a director who had made, he'd made a very funny movie. A friend of mine invited me to see it and I went to see it and I thought it was hilarious. And it was one of I was like, oh man, this, the sky's the limit for this guy. He was a writer director. And, and so I saw my friend a little later and I said, how's it going with the guy, the director of that movie, he said, he said, he's really worried because, or he's really concerned because he, he got offered to direct a job to direct the next Adam Sandler movie. This was, you know what that movie was? I, if I remember correctly, it was Happy Gilmore. Holy shit. He got and the guy, to direct it? Yeah. And the guy turned it down because he thought it was, he was like, Adam Sandler, that's not serious. That's goofy. That's insane. Yeah. Okay. I was like, yeah. do it. Are you like, well, he doesn't think How's his career doing now? I'm sure if I Googled him, I would see some things that he's done, but just, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think he missed, he missed a big boat there. Yeah. I'm sure he thinks about that a lot. So listen, let's go to our next portion of the podcast. This is where we invite a couple of, like I asked different guests, like what's a couple of your favorite movie scenes? or just scenes that you love from any films that you love. And I asked our guests ahead of time and you gave me a scene from the Philadelphia experiment. So let's talk about Philadelphia story, the Philadelphia story. I don't know why I said Philadelphia experiment. Yeah. The Philadelphia the science fiction. Yes. <laughs> the Philadelphia story. That's right. With Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant and James Stewart. And it was directed by George Cukor was a great director back in the day, very well-known director in his heyday. So tell us a little bit about the film and tell us a little bit about the scene. It, the film itself is, it's, it's, in my opinion, it's a masterpiece. Philadelphia story is, and I remember, I, I actually saw it for the first time in college in a class, it was history of the American motion picture. And I was, I don't know how late I was, but the movie was already going. And I had no idea what it was or what was happening. 
I just know that I just knew that the dialogue was beautiful. It was like poetry, and it was just I just I was like I don't know what this is, but I love it. And I just sat down and of course looked into it more and got a copy of it and everything like that. But it's a love story about a a divorced woman, which was very uncommon in the 1940s, who is about to marry someone new, and her ex-husband, played by Cary Grant. Is he's not trying to prevent it exactly. He's just trying to show her the reality of the situation with the guy that she's going to marry and what he's all about. And and Jimmy Stewart gets sucked into the situation by bad luck. He's a reporter who is sent to the wedding undercover to report on it because it's a society wedding. Catherine Hepburn's character is a very wealthy society woman. And so he's a guy, he's basically a gossip reporter and, and he ends up falling in love or what he thinks is love with Catherine Hepburn over the course of two days. And they have this wonderful scene where they're both drunk, but they're not, they're that lovely movie drunk where you're dark, you're adorable and you're not disgusting and you float rather than fall and vomit and that kind of thing. And so they're having this very charming conversation in the middle of the night in the garden of this fabulous home. And they're arguing about, he says, at one point he says, Tracy, you can't marry that guy. And she says, oh, I'm going to, he says, no, he says, I would have thought, I would originally thought you were, you guys were made for each other, but I can see that guy's a jerk. And he's, when he starts telling her what he thinks of her and what he's telling her that he thinks of her is so completely different from what her husband-to-be is telling her that she gets caught up in it. And it's maybe this guy sees me for who I am. And he's saying things like, there are fires in you and you're a woman on, you're passionate. And whereas the other guys, I want to put you on a pedestal and never touch you. I just want to look at you like you're a, you're and a, a shot a, in like a two shot where she's profiled. And that's really, it's actually a beautiful, and, frame until then it pulls out mm -hmm. the camera pulls out toward that the scene they don't break yes I, they, I think they perform for about four or five minutes straight shot as a wonder yeah Which i love that there's an art of that oh sure. yeah i love actors but there aren't too many actors i would ask to do that nowadays with without receiving a horrified what i can't you just want me to perform without stopping? i wonder how many takes of it that they did I really don't know. I would know. love to know that. Yeah, I think I, in some of those long scenes, I've caught a chop right in the middle. There was no effort to cover it at all. It was just simply, right, it was just right, a, right. Yeah. clearly a cut from one take to another take of the exact same thing. And so people were a little different and there's, some, there's something, but it's forgivable. Yeah, you know? totally. But yeah, no, beautiful scene and yeah. Great film. And actually, I have to admit that one of the one of the things I like doing about this podcast is it's giving me, it's forcing me to actually explore films that I might not normally like get a chance to see because it's like there's only so much time to see everything that you end <laughs> up just seeing maybe what's newer or even something that's older by happenstance, but this podcast and me prompting this question has given me a chance to really check out things that might not normally be on my list of things to watch. So I appreciate that. So let's also talk Steel Magnolias. Now the next film, Steel mm -hmm. Magnolias, which came out when I was a kid and I never watched it until now. I remember maybe watching it for five minutes that like my parents were watching it or something. And I knew it had Dolly Parton, Julia Roberts, and Sally Field. So tell us a little bit about that movie. When did you first watch that movie when it came out? Like when did you fall in love with that movie? And why is I, that movie so special to you? There are, it's funny, there are two movies from the 90s, not 90s, the 80s that I grouped them together even though they were about seven or eight years apart. Terms of Endearment and Steel Magnolias. And they're probably considered women's films because women are the, they tend to be the main characters and it's, they're not love stories. And there is love that happens in them, but they're, 
their stories more about mother-daughter relationship or women friendships. And both of those movies are tearjerkers. And that's a mean way of saying it, but basically they, someone dies and yeah. it can be very sad. Spoiler alert. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. That's okay. But they, and, I, and in both cases, both movies, I had the same reaction when I first saw them. I was like, oh, are they killing some? Oh, they can't. And I felt manipulated and I was mad. And, and, be, and But the part of the reason I was mad is because I had loved the movies up until those, that point. I, in terms of Endearment and Steel Magnolias, both. I just absolutely loved every second of them. And then we start getting into the, the scenes in the hospital and the mother holding somebody's hand. And I was like, oh, crap. And that was my initial reaction. But then in the years since, I would be at a friend's house or whatever, just somewhere in public. And one of those movies might be on and I would always stop and watch. And then I'd sit down and I'd get closer because I wanted to hear it. And I realized that I love them, even though they make me cry, but they're not going to make me cry as nearly as powerfully as they did the first time. So I'm immune to that. And so now I just get to joy, enjoy the wonderful acting on display. And the scene from Steel Magnolias, it's absolutely hilarious. Basically, Olympia Dukakis and Shirley MacLaine are old friends. And Shirley MacLaine is a monster, but she admits it. And She's like a curmudgeon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, She's and, just like a moody, angry... Old yeah. Lady. She said, the only reason anybody talks to me is because I have more money than God. That's Did they I'm... use makeup to make her look even older than she was? Because I was watching, it, it happened to be I was watching the movie Being There. Oh, sure. A couple of months ago. And I was watching it for the first time. I loved it. And Shirley MacLaine was in it. And that movie was 10 years before. But Shirley MacLaine just looks so different being there than she does. Even though it was 10 years, it just seemed, I'm like, did they like play it up to make her look even older than she was? Or was it just a rough year, 10 years? Sometimes that could happen to, it could happen to anybody. It's, uh, all of us are aging. So like a 10 year gap could change the way anybody looks like. But I felt like it was exponential. Actually, it's funny what, that you say that because you can see that in the same movie in uh, Postcards from the Edge, which she did in the 90s with, Meryl Streep. She plays an actress who is getting older, and at one point she ends. She get she's ends up in the hospital, and so she has no makeup, or she's supposed to look like she has no makeup on, no wig on, whatever, and and she's near death. And then her daughter Meryl Streep comes to visit her, and so she says, "Oh, I have." She says, "There are reporters out there because she's playing an actress who's famous." There were reporters out there. They want to comment from you. And she's, oh my goodness. So she starts putting on powder and puts the wig on and she puts on a nice, elegant bathrobe, that kind of thing. And then when she comes out for the reporters, she is, she's very regal and poised. And, and she does look 10 years younger, just slapping on some makeup. I'm sure they did a lot of fancy stuff, but she just transforms because she's doing it for the press. That is funny. And when you see the Terms of Endearment, I think Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger are both supposed to age about 20 years in the course of that movie. And they do it convincingly. So anyway, going back to yes. Steel Magnolias. Yeah. And it is a beautiful scene, by the way, that you chose. These two women are in the cemetery because one of the main characters has passed away, Julia Roberts' character, which is Sally Field's daughter. Right. Sally Field is the mother, and she's essentially there at the cemetery and her friends are sort of consoling her. Yeah. She says, I want to know why I just, I want to know why God took my daughter from me. And she says, I get so mad. I just want to hit something. And then Olympia Dukakis grabs Shirley MacLaine and says, hit her. And she's like, what do you mean? She says, no, come on. We've all wanted to hit this lady at some point. Take a whack at her. Go ahead. And and what happens is that Sally Field starts laughing. Yeah. And then right. everybody she did starts it. laughing. She did it to diffuse the tension in the situation, which was yeah. amazing because Shirley MacLaine was like, what are you saying? She didn't 
that was lost on her. So she's like, are you high? I like how she was like, are you high or something? And she got really upset. It was, yeah, it is a great scene. And what's even great about that scene is before that, Daryl Hannah's character, who she was a newcomer to town in the beginning of the movie, and then she gets acclimated. She starts working for Dolly Parton as a hairdresser. And I like Dolly Parton's character a lot. Too yeah. in the film. I like Sam Shepard in the film. He's great and everything, but he, I like, just the dynamics between the characters. I just like how Dolly Parton carries herself, like her character in that film, I like how she carries herself. But what I like about it is, it's one of these moments where Sally Field is clearly upset, she's grieving, it's it's unimaginable for mm -hmm. somebody to lose their young daughter like that. And then Daryl Hannah is saying something that is obviously attempting at being comforting, but it's just not quite the right thing, the yeah. appropriate thing to say at that moment. We're saying, oh, maybe this is a good thing that's happened because now she's in heaven where everything's okay. And Sally Field just does not want to hear that. She was like, well, forgive me for being upset about it, basically. Forgive me for being selfish that I want her here. And so at first she's really upset, but it's what I like about that scene is the transformation of she goes from being upset and it goes from being awkward to her acknowledging that this young woman is trying to comfort her and she's then easing up and just relenting to the fact that, hey, they're just trying to make me feel better. This is horrible. The Man. fact that they're going, she's surrounded by her close friends makes it a little bit less horrible. It makes it a little bit more bearable at least. So you do really feel the emotional beats of the scene. I could see why you chose the scene. It is a very impactful scene. And the actors in the, some of the actors in the Maginot line, the movie I shot last summer, they said, is there a movie that, what are you going for here? And I said, Steel Magnolias. I said, that's what I, that's, I said, if I can achieve anything close to what they did in that movie, that's what I want for this movie. Cause it's about a, it's a, the film is about women basically. It's about women and their friendships, and it's based on a true story. There, it seems like that it's a topic that you're drawn to, actually. I find women incredibly interesting. <laughs> Absolutely, no question. Yeah, yeah. and I'm just curious if it's just if it happens to be that you write that way, or is it a conscious decision? Is it? it... I'm gonna. I'm probably easily proved wrong with what I'm about to say, but. I feel like I understand men. I get it. I understand what drives most guys. And because I feel I have those same feelings myself. Movies about men and male friendships and everything. I enjoy those, but I don't, I'm not fascinated. I'm just, yeah, I get it. It's nice to see on screen reflected what you are feeling from time to time. But women are aliens to me. And I'm always fascinated by the way that they interact. And I'm always, and I like to write about it. And I write about it because I don't understand it inside. Like I wrote Girls Night In, which was originally called Beauty, Brains, and Personality. I wrote it because I didn't, I wanted to explore something that was, that I just didn't get. It was in the same way that somebody might want to write about, I don't know, the life of Nat King Cole. Like they do some research and they, they read about his relationship, that kind of thing. So you come to an understanding. For me, it was coming to an understanding of this friendship that fell apart and why and is there a that's way a cool, that? i think that's a interesting reason so emmett we're pretty much out of time here emmett i really appreciate you being on the podcast could you tell us where people could follow along sure with you and just check out what you're doing and this is how you spell my name l-o-v-e-r-d-e -E. this is actually my cousin carlos has a business called King Laverde Barbecue, <laughs> but I love the t-shirt. Cool. Yeah, it's a nice shirt, and I'm sure it's um, a good barbecue spot. It, he's uh, their food is fantastic. They're in they're located in Orange County. If you're ever in town, but the I'm the I'm probably the only Emmett Laverde in the world. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Three of my films are on Tubi. T U B I. 
And one of my film, Girls Night In, is on Tubi and it's also on Amazon Prime. And then She's Out of His Mind, another feature that I did, is on Tubi. And it's also on a bunch of other venues like Hoopla. Actually, go to Hoopla because I get paid more from Hoopla than anybody else. And, and I got a bunch of stuff on YouTube. The fun thing is YouTube is like my proving ground. I put stuff on YouTube that I'm not sure quite what to do with it yet. And so there are a lot of weird little videos that I've made over the years. There's a project, I got to tell you, there's a project that I did with my brother called Paul Laverty. And it's called Free Advice. And it's about two guys who go down to the beach, set up a table and chairs and put a sign up that just says free advice. And people stop and talk to them. And they're very short episodes. And it's one of the best things I've ever done. We have 10 episodes up on YouTube. And you can go to freeadviceseries.com and you can watch all 10 episodes for free. And one of these days, I really want to make a feature out of that show. But my brother has to move back to California or something. Nice. <laughs> good stuff. I wish you continued success, my friend. And good luck on your upcoming shoot. All right, Emmett. Thanks, man. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast. Hosted by Zef Gota. Executive producer Jeff Cutler. Original music by Yuri Ryback.